Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Somali President Formaggio makes a U-turn on his attempt to stay in power. What needs to happen to move the political process forward? And the Islamic insurgency in northern Mozambique briefly captures a regional capital and oil hub. How do we implement a holistic response to this threat? Plus, we discuss gangs, self-defense forces, and vigilantes in Africa. Why do they dot the security landscape and what should we do about them? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Somali President Formaggio backed down from his attempt to extend his term in office by two years. Are we out of the woods? Joining me to discuss Somalia and other topics are Comfort Arrow, Interim Vice President at the International Crisis Group, Leanne Erdberg-Stegman, Director of Violent Extremism at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and David Africa, a former South African intelligence officer who served in the ANC's underground military wing and then later in the South African intelligence community. So after thumbing his nose at international and domestic pressure to hold elections on time, Somali President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed, also known by his nickname for Majo, made a U-turn. This had a lot to do with the fact that there was an outbreak of violence in Mogadishu, and two of his key allies, the leaders of Hirshabele and Gamadug state governments, withdrew their support. Somalia's president has agreed not to extend his term amid domestic and international pressure. Mohamed Abdullahi Farmajo also promised to hold early elections. He made the announcement after the prime minister said he was against the proposed two-year extension. Comfort, I hope you can just give us a little bit of background. How did we get here? And what has to happen to make sure that the political process is back on track, stays on track? Thanks, Jordan. And thank you also for inviting me on your podcast. I've always been a sort of avid listener to the CSIS Africa podcast. It was a sort of major U-turn by President Farmado this week to pull back from the unilateral sort of decision that was taken on the 12th of April by Parliament to endorse sort of a two-year addition of his stay in power, likely because of the you know, domestic and international pressure, which included that 25th of April, um, I believe, um, clashes that broke out between forces loyal to himself and those aligned to the political opposition. It's interesting that within moments of those clashes that we saw, Prime Minister himself issued a statement saying that the government, you know, now wants to open up the process to dialogue. And as you remember, Judd, last September, there was an agreement about the electoral process that was agreed to by all the various sort of political classes in Somalia. And that framework set out the nature of the elections. That process called for sort of an indirect vote. But it's worth pointing out that if we're going to go back to the 17th of September agreement, I think one of the things that has to happen and we've suggested is that we have to broaden that September agreement to other parties in the country, not just the original signatories, but you know, the wider opposition and civil society. Just to also go back to your question, Judd, that the one thing that we've sort of pushed for a crisis group is that there has to be some kind of, I would say, a third party mediation 
including Somalia's external partners, led by the African Union and backed by the UN, the, the, the US particularly, the Security Council also to organize fresh talks among all the stakeholders to craft a roadmap that leads us to the elections. But that's going to be a difficult judge because there's been a deep distrust in the country, which has been further deepened with the arrival of opposition forces from, by the way, within the National Security Army. And how we lower the temperature and begin to get back on track to the election is going to be a very, very difficult process going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's a truly difficult problem and puzzle to disentangle because, as you rightly know, Comfort, the president's support has clearly crumbled, including from his prime minister. The signatories of the September agreement of last year was probably too narrow. It included the federal government, the five member states, federal member states, as well as the mayor of Mogadishu. And I want to turn to Leanne because she had been a director for Somalia during the Obama administration, actually Leanne immediately followed me. She cleaned up all of my mistakes. And I I want to ask you, Leanne, based on what Comfort is saying, so the AU and the UN will have to be, have strong roles here in terms of pushing this process forward, but certainly the United States should be doing its part as well. How do these international players reinforce this opening, but also act as umpire to make sure that everyone's marching together. Secretary of State Blinken, this was before Fermaggio made his U-turn, you know, said he would consider all options, including sanctions and visa restrictions. If you were sitting back in the White House, you know, what would you be doing to drive this process forward? Thanks so much, Judd, and thanks so much for having me on today. I mean, I think that when it comes to Somalia's electoral politics, delays and diversions and power grabs and political machinations um, are frankly more of a feature than a bug of the system. And even though we're at quite a high stress point, I think anyone who would be in a White House position or in a State Department position, frankly, shouldn't find themselves that surprised. The idea that their ruling party and opposition each have their own units from within the military are somewhat of an open secret. And I think one of the things that sometimes gets lost in in the political level conversations is that like so many of Somalia's challenges, civilians get the consequences. The quick jump from political disagreement to armed skirmish is impacting and displacing and causing casualties among innocent Somalis. And so one of the things that I would be advising is to just try and keep a pulse on what ordinary Somalis are saying. I mean, some of them are talking about you know, impending civil war to describe the current situation, I think that reflects a little bit of a reading of the tea leaves, but also a result of collective trauma and suffering that have been 30 years in the making. But on the policy side, I mean, some of the things that I would be advocating for is that I think some of the realism about Somalia and its nascency on providing governance in the 21st century have allowed international players to become way too satisfied with very attenuated, indirect demonstration of representation. And these half steps on representative democracy have allowed power holders to accrue the entirety of the resources or the wealth or the power with only half of the democratic spaces. So I'm a little uh, like skeptical that any of the existing tools that are usually in the multilateral architecture are very well placed to match the levels of complex conflict to really shape the political calculus of the actors in Somalia. I think they did a really good job 
in diminishing Farmaggio's political capital because the U.S. is always at its strongest when it comes to Somalia, when it's part of a chorus. I still think that there probably needs to be a little bit more attention given to, as Comfort was saying, this lack of trust is so deep. And these half steps on governance have probably exacerbated as opposed to healed much of this distrust. And so the unfortunate reality is that I think this makes it much harder for adhering to a multilateral framework or getting to agreement in parliament I think that not to draw too fine of a distinction, but the tough work of peace building is not the same thing as deal making. And Somali politics have probably taught us that lesson hundreds of times over by now. That being said, I do think that there are tools that can help, you know, try and de-incentivize the power grabs and the violence over stabilization that has characterized too many of these political challenges. And I do think involving as many portions of the Somali ecosystem, Somali people, different clans and the like might be really helpful in trying to heal some of those much deeper divisions. And so I hope that this isn't just an elite bargain. And I hope that there are ways in which this can be much more tied to the outcomes for Somali, ordinary Somalis. So you and Comfort, I think, have painted the picture of the domestic challenges But I do think it's important for our our audience to zoom out a little bit because what's happening right now in Somalia, unfortunately, comes at a time when the broader Horn of Africa is truly unraveling. And Comfort, if you could just zoom out for us a little bit, we've got a horrific civil war in Ethiopia, which includes Eritrean troops. There's border skirmishes between Ethiopia and Sudan. And how does Somalia fit into this bigger picture? Probably a whole other episode, but... I know you can provide us some sort of top-line analysis in a short amount of time. You know, the events in Somalia, you know, are happening at the time, sort of a shift in dynamics in the Horn. When Prime Minister Abiy um, sort of came into power in April 2018, both Ethiopia and Eritrea, with Somalia, they became a much closer um, sort of tripartite group. And you'll recall that they signed this pact in Asmara also in later in 2018, between the three leaders. And it was judged at the time, particularly by external partners, you know, they judged it to be sort of representing an important step in terms of dealing with peace and development, you know, in the Horn. For Eritrea in particular, Judd, this tripartite sort of group, we would interpret it, you know, as being a challenge to the regional body, IGAD, which as you know, Asmara and the Eritrean leader, Isaias Ifawaki himself, he always judged and saw Igad as a threat to Asmara. Particularly, he's always seen it as sort of an enterprise by Ethiopia's own former prime minister, Mela Zanawi, as an endeavor, if you wish, to isolate Eritrea when the two countries themselves were at odds with one another. Also for Prime Minister Abiy, this tripartite agreement alliance um, could prove useful, again, as another mechanism to bypass IGAD in case there is further falling out between Ethiopia and Sudan over, for example, the GERD Nile Renaissance Dam dispute. It also can be linked to another way to sidestep IGAD over the current border dispute between Ethiopia and Sudan as a consequence of the Tigray war as well. And I think what the recent events in Somalia shows us is that Formaggio's position in Somalia 
is in fact probably, I would argue, a lot weaker today than what the other two parties expected from the alliance. At the same time, Ethiopia and Eritrea's involvement in the war in Ethiopia's sort of northern Tigray region has in turn also meant that these two leaders, Abiy and Isaias, have not been able to support Farmajo diplomatically as he would have preferred. To sum all this up, even though it has remained unclear whether the tripartite alliance was, you know, serving the three capitals' short-term sort of goals, or whether it is, you know, serving its long-term plans, the recent events in Somalia reaffirm or confirm that the three countries' endeavour to change the balance of influence in the Horn is under serious threat and is under jeopardy at the moment. Yeah, no, thank you, Comfort. And it just adds this additional layer of complexity. So what's happening domestically and then how it connects to some of these broader regional dynamics. And I will just say, having followed Somalia for a very long time and understood some of the impediments towards even the transition to a more permanent government in 2012, it's only happened when the region, I would say the region with an asterisk not including Eritrea, has seen the problem the same way. And we're so far beyond that at this point. There is no way to sort of harness these different countries in partnership with Somali actors and with the U.S. and the U.N., etc. So that's not only exacerbating the totality of the problem, but it also minimizes or narrows the opportunity for solutions because they're so far apart or because of this realignment. So this isn't the first time we've talked about these issues, and we'll certainly be back to that. But I want to take the opportunity to move to our second topic, which is Mozambique. As you know, Islamic insurgents known by the names al-Sunnah or al-Shabaab, or if you're the U.S. government, you call them ISIS-Mozambique, they seized the regional capital of Palma for about 10 days in late March. A suspected Islamist insurgent group has seized the northern Mozambique town of Palma. This comes after days of fighting forced hundreds of thousands of people to flee. Local media say several people were killed during the conflict. Exact numbers have not been verified as communication networks are down in the area. A nearby natural gas project from French company Total has been forced to suspend operations. The project has been stalled by repeated attacks in the region, which has been plagued by violence since 2017. This attack underscored how much this group has evolved since October 2017. It's underlined the dire implications of its operations, adding a humanitarian crisis, forcing the French energy company Total to declare a force majeure. CSIS, our associate Emily Colombo, has written a lot about this, and so has crisis group. I follow your team's interviews, comfort, the tweets, the tweet threads, the analysis. It is essential for how I understand dynamics in northern Mozambique, in addition to incredible Mozambican analysts, of course. What is your thoughts on how this group has become so formidable and maybe some recommendations on what Mozambicans, the Mozambican government should be doing? Thanks, Jordan. It's very interesting to me because, you know, we're going from Somalia. If you look at the map further down, the Swahili Indian Ocean coastline, and now our latest insurgency in Mozambique. And as you were asking me that question, I quickly opened up Twitter to see if my colleagues have posted any new information. Yeah, hats up to Dino, right? Dino's just like the thread king. <laughs> so I was looking to see what Dino said today that I need to sort of think about. 
An important point that he makes here too, Mozambique watches, you know, that Lloyds of London now says that the coastal waters off the shores of Capo Delgado, which is the centerpiece of the conflict, and Tanzania are now considered danger zones, and all vessel owners need to inform insurance companies of their boats passing through. So this is not just a crisis inland, but it's also in the high seas of the country as well. You know, four years ago, we never imagined that we would be talking about a full-blown insurgency in the country, you know, where we've seen, at least over today's estimates, suggest over 2,000 civilians have been killed and we nearly have one million people displaced. The group that is fighting that calls itself Al-Shabaab, it has its roots in the country. It's important not to focus on this sort of US designation that came a few weeks ago. This is a group whose grievances are located in country. And the insurgency has been, I would say, years in the making. One can go back, in fact, as far as 2007, very much located and dominated by youths from a particular ethnic group fighting another ethnic group and you know, perceived marginalization from the state that has delivered very little for some living in a region that is home, as you rightly noted, to that discovery of huge minerals and carbohydrate deposits as well. And on top of that layer of sense of marginalization, there has been sort of growing resentment against several anti-colonial sort of liberation era generals, you know, who are said to, you know, build up heavy business interest in, in the province, who are linked to another ethnic group. Another thing that I, I wanted to say also is that, of course, as in any conflict, insurgencies, they always take on a very different meaning. And as in all cases, they all, always tend to be exploited by others with different intentions from the origins. There are other militants who are coming in from Tanzania, for example, and that country has been an important access point for jihadists moving between Mozambique and Great Lakes, for example, and also connected to the instability in East Africa, Swahili's coast as well. Now, in terms of what needs to happen, the reason why I focused on the history is because, you know, the policy response needs to understand those root causes as well. You know, the insurgency at the very beginning was never taken seriously. Initially, it was seen as criminals and bandits. If you go with that description, and then the other description that is, that is attached to it, I, is that they're terrorists, then your policy response becomes skewed towards that definition as well. And that's a problem. By the way, how many times have we seen that movie, Comfort, where a government says they're criminals and then shifts to the terrorist line? Exactly. If you get the analysis wrong, your response to it will be wrong. The other layer to that, of course, we've seen successively, whether it's in Nigeria, whether it's in the Sahel, whether it's in Somalia, government tend to mismanage what initially starts off as a very localized problem. Then because they mismanage it, it becomes full blown. And oftentimes the army is oftentimes in these settings um, unable to respond to this. And in, in the situation of Mozambique, we have an army that has been overrun by a formidable force. Now, let me say in response to your question in terms of what Mozambique needs to do, and by the way, its international partners need to do, lessons learned from the Sahel, from Lake Chad Basin, and even Somalia that we were just talking about, this will not be solved by a military-only solution. We will not rule out a military solution. And in fact, the regional body, SADAC, has already decided 
following a lot of resistance by Mozambique, will deploy. We're still looking at the mandate, but they're going to deploy about 3,000 forces. So there is clearly a military component tied to this as well. But because you cannot win this on the battlefield, you, you really have to kind of have a comprehensive approach to this. Now, to the credit of the government, they have accepted that they need a regional sort of external response because there are implications for the region as well. Of course, the other vital sort of ingredient to all of this is that he needs to focus on dealing with delivery of development and aid into communities that are clearly on the periphery. You really need to focus on broadening out, making sure it's comprehensive, and not seeing this group as terrorists because then you get your solutions wrong. And the international community, particularly sort of Western partners, they have their various interests. You named one, oil and gas, got to make sure they're focused on helping um, the country deal with this twin problem and development. It's worth emphasizing that Maputo needs to be encouraged to strengthen efforts to deal with corruption and illicit economies, i.e. governance, that's enabled some of this as well, and to deal with other issues around transnational networks you know, and criminality that is flowing now from the Swahili coast as well. So I'll stop there, Job, but I really just wanted to emphasize this sort of historical background as well. No, it's so important for the remainder of the conversation around Mozambique, getting that the history right, understanding the different actors, their points of view. And I think we're really lucky in today's podcast because, David, you know exactly what it's like to be an insurgency. You were part of Nkoto Wasizwe in South Africa, and then you joined the South African government after 1994, and you know what it's like to fight insurgencies. So I'd love to get your thoughts here on listening to what Comfort is saying and best practices, lessons learned. And then as a South African, what should the region be doing here, mindful of some of the warnings that Comfort put out there? Jacques, thanks for having me. I'd like to make three basic points. You know, the first concern I have is that we have a new situation igniting on the African East Coast, which turns almost the entirety of the coast into some or other level of instability. And so I think to look at Mozambique in isolation is very dangerous because I think that there seems to be a pattern developing, you know, over, over the last two years or so of these conflicts springing up. And they may or may not be interrelated, but obviously, you know, they impact on each other in the end. So that is the first thing that concerns me. And I think the way in which the situation is approached should take that into consideration because, you know, as Comfort has said, the SADC, SADC, has decided to deploy a military capability of 3,000 personnel. And the one concern I have about that is, firstly, there is the sort of contextual dynamic of conflict all over the place, right? So are you overstretching yourself? Are you contributing, exacerbating the situation in an already volatile region? The second thing is, it seems to me that we don't know enough about the insurgency in order to intelligently intervene. So, you know, Comfort just mentioned how the National Army, for example, is struggling against, you know, what appears to many people to have been a very sudden emergence of an insurgency. And it seems that it's something that brew and suddenly there was a qualitative leap in operational capability of the insurgents. 
And my worry is that we have not sufficiently made the effort to understand what is happening, apart from root causes. If we want to look at relationships with other institutions, if we want to look at how it fits into regional dynamics or even global dynamics, we are talking about dynamics emerging geopolitically in the Indo-Pacific. And here we are dealing with the Western edge of that broader geostrategic development. You know, have we considered sufficiently how this insurgency relates to those broader issues and how we could exacerbate it? So, you know, a decision has been taken to deploy. My own view is that that is a decision taken without due consideration or due appreciation of the complexities of the situation in Mozambique. And I fear that it is a decision that will come back to haunt the region. Just to add to that, David, I'm not even sure that we have full concurrence for Mozambique. This is a country that is protective of its sovereignty. Yes, it's done some border operations with Tanzania, but it's not clear to me that a 3,000-man deployment is going to be fully embraced by Maputo. I don't know, Comfort, if you've heard that they've given it the green light. I mean, David, you might know a bit more. I know that there was um, a technical assessment mission sent out by the SADC. And I know that one of the crucial things there was about responding to Noisi, the president's own concerns, Judd, that you pointed to around sovereignty. And Mozambique has historical reasons to be suspicious about external intervention, whether it's from the near neighborhood or, or far. I mean, we have to sort of look closely at the specific of the mission's mandate. Two things are crucial. One, that it doesn't get bogged down, that it doesn't exacerbate um, or fuel further tensions and also violate um, human rights and, and, and abuse. I really do think the points that you've made, David, are, are important. I would want that mission, although I haven't seen closely what its makeup is going to look like, to focus on protection of civilians and to make sure that it provides the pathway to enable um, the delivery of humanitarian access. I mean, because the displaced are in a very vulnerable and precarious situation. What worries me also, Judd, is that there are various competing interests and those interests aren't just Western interests. They're also regional interests and they also go as far as sort of Gulf um, interests as well. And a lot of that is tied, obviously, with the oil and gas interest and, dare I say it, illicit activities around narco drug trafficking and things like that. Yeah, I mean, the, the analogy to uh, the FIB, the Intervention Force Intervention Brigade, which was in a UN mission, but it had mainly SATA countries that were exclusively SATA countries. And we don't know what the mission is, but just quickly, what they're proposing is 3000 regional troops three light infantry battalions of 630 troops each, two special forces squadrons, two attack helicopters, two armed helicopters, two surface patrol ships, one submarine, one maritime surveillance aircraft, and logistical support equipment. And the idea is to recapture Mosia de Praia, which is a town that the insurgents have had for a very long time. So all the things that you and David have said here are missing, right? We don't know what the mission is. There's not at least... And what we know so far, a focus on civilian protection, it's heavily militarized. There is some value in, in some of this, but we should be watching very carefully what happens. We need to move to our, our last section today, which is on gangs, 
militias and self-defense groups. This is hardly a new topic, but it has become more urgent in recent years. From Nigeria to the Sahel and Ethiopia, we're seeing more governments directly or indirectly use these non-state, often community-based groups to fight crime or counter-terrorist groups. Leanne, you oversee the Resolve Network's work. You have a great team of researchers publishing, I mean, incredible analysis on this phenomenon. And I hoped you could give everyone just a quick introduction. What's the different typologies of groups out there? You know, and why are we seeing this surge recently across the region? So it's funny to be the one to give the quick introduction because in one of our publications on the topic, the author spends, I think, um, a full page talking about how and why there's no real quick introduction into community-based armed groups, but I'm going to try my best. The first is that these groups usually exist in a zone of ambiguity. That means that the zone is kind of this presence between the presence and absence of government usually within the zone of protecting the community, often in a bounded area, and usually rising in response to an unmet community need. That said, once they're formed, they also can change a lot over time. They change based on internal shifts, like a leadership change, and then they also change based on external circumstances, like state-sanctioned support. The second is that groups can be organized in a lot of different ways around ethnic lines or geographically or for a purpose like fighting crime, but they seem to draw their legitimacy primarily in two ways. The first is from the community and the second is as blessed by the state. This gets to the third aspect that I think is worth mentioning is the group's relationship with the community and or the state and what are the contours of that relationship. Are there shared norms? Are there shared definitions for what the group does or doesn't do? And perhaps more importantly for the international community is do they use violence or to a lesser extent predation and extortion and other types of quasi-violence to achieve their ends? But to judge to your real question on like, why are we seeing this more? On some level uh, across Sub-Saharan Africa, the groups have existed on and off for decades, if not longer. But they are getting a lot of attention currently, which connects back to some of the earlier parts of the podcast, I think, particularly for these groups that are fighting violent extremist organizations. I think there's a bit of a flawed assumption that is also taking part into why these groups are getting a lot more attention currently. And that flawed assumption is that state building is the job of the state. The truth is, in many fragile states, they have no ability or legitimacy to provide public goods, including security, to vast portions of their country. And that's not just rural and geographic portions, but also at times in urban settings. But that doesn't mean that communities no longer have security needs, even if the state has proven itself to be absent. In fact, many times, non-state armed actors can end up providing more security than the state itself. And so these gaps seem to be widening as some of these security concerns compound. Local forms of security are filling the gaps. They're really well-placed to understand communities and to actually be fitting into them. Sometimes this can be quite positive on dispute resolution or compliance, basic governance tasks, but at other times it can be quite abusive. And so some of these groups can be coercive and extort local businesses and, and create wealth accumulation for themselves. They can be abusive towards civilians. 
ultimately, in terms of just trying to understand why there's more and more of them, I think the complexity of the security challenges and the absence of the state are probably the best ways of understanding the proliferation of community-based armed groups. Thanks, Leanne. And I asked you to do a lot of heavy lifting, so we'll definitely put a link to the Resolve Network's work so that our audience can really dig into these fabulous reports. Comfort Crisis Group has been talking about this, I mean, for a very long time, but I recall a report in 2017, Double-Edged Sword, Vigilantes and African Counterinsurgencies, which you tackled this head on. And then it's been a theme of so much of Crisis Group's subsequent work. I'm positive your thinking has evolved in the past four years. And Leanne has set you up really nicely. But where do you think the pros and cons of these groups are? Thanks, Jordan. You know, as Leanne was speaking, I was nodding my head. Some of the fundamental issues, you know, remain the same in terms of why we've seen an emergence and even, I would say, a proliferation of vigilante groups, you know, and why we call them a double-edged sword. You know, when we were writing back in 2017, it was within the context of we asked ourselves a question back then, Jordan, how to deal with a civilian joint task force that was emerging as an, an alternative force on the ground to deal with Boko Haram's now mushroom insurgency in northern Nigeria and that spilled into Lake Chad basin countries, Cameroon, Niger and Chad. All those countries, as you know, had some kind of self-defense force to respond to the insurgency. And the reason why they came up is because the state was often absent and the state was not able to provide civilians and communities with the appropriate protection. And in a sense, Judge, you can argue that these self-defense forces are another example in which in certain states or some states, people have decided to abdicate from the state and no longer rely on the state to provide them their security as well. And the reason why we, we said it's a double-edged sword is because there are pros, as you rightfully note, and there are cons, you know. And the one con is that Vigilantes can be more effective than state actors in providing that very localized security that people need, especially dealing with those peripheral, far away from the center crises that you've seen, whether it's in Burkina, in Mali, in Niger, in Cameroon, in Chad. Vigilante groups can, we would argue, undermine central authority. They can, and they have done, widened or fueled conflict by targeting, you know, ethnic and political rivals, and they threaten sort of longer term stability. And they could also undermine the state security architecture. And since we wrote that report, by the way, Judd, in 2017, we've seen the vigilante groups sort of evolve in a precarious way, for example, in Burkina Faso. Now, one of the problems we've seen there with the self-defense groups there is that they've gone beyond the security roles in the absence of a functioning state there. For example, one negative is that they've gone on to play this kind of like investigative role to investigate crimes and to judge alleged crimes, and their capacity and standards are not suited to this kind of situation. My last um, example on, on this in terms of how our thinking has evolved is more recently in northwestern Nigeria. We've seen how local politicians or community leaders in these areas affected by violence have encouraged extrajudicial killings by vigilante groups because it serves the political and personal interests of these local politicians. As in everything in crisis group, there are some broad cross-cutting recommendations one can make about 
how to respond to these groups, but there are also very local sort of recommendations that we have to make because each situation needs, as you'll appreciate, needs to be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis. But that overall message about the double-edged sword, I think, still remains very much relevant today. I want to dig into a different case study that is contemporary with some of the case studies that you had in, in that 2017 report. But this is about South Africa, and in particular, it's about Pagad, also known as the People Against Gangsterism and Drugs. They operated in Cape Town in the 1990s and early 2000s. And David, this had been a huge part of your work when you worked for the South African government to try to address uh, Pagad's violent activities. And I just thought you could add some color to our conversation in terms of what happens with these groups and then what do you have to do to put an end to, a stop to, a reign of what ultimately became a reign of terror from Pagad? Yes, Chad. I think Leanne was talking about zones of ambiguity. And uh, in South Africa, in a different way, this organization, Pagad, emerged in a sort of ambiguous period in the country's history with a transition to democracy. So, you know, after 1994, but before, obviously, the democratic system was, was properly embedded. And I mean, that's ongoing work in itself, but it was in the very early years of the transitions. And so the organization, which started as a vigilante organization and transitioned into a proper terrorist one, could gain a lot of support from people because, you know, they dealt with issues that affected people that everyone was concerned about and that everyone was in a hurry to see it being addressed by the new government. But obviously it being a new government, you know, it wasn't just immediately capable of doing so. In this sort of transition from one to another system, this vigilante and subsequently terrorist movement emerged. Now, in terms of how to deal with it, one had to consider, and it's interesting, the Mozambique situation at the moment, firstly, that one had to develop a proper appreciation of what is happening here. Why are people who fought for a democratic government and for the largest part supported the political movement, which is now in power, turning violently against this very government? And is anyone behind it? To what extent are the grievances real and how rooted are these people in communities? And so the sort of analytic work and the intelligence work that goes into this was so important for us to develop a proper appreciation of those dynamics. And that enabled us to act decisively, but not in haste, you know, because what, as I said earlier, my concern with Mozambique is that decision is being conflated with haste. And in a context where you don't have sufficient intelligence, you'll find yourself in a difficult situation. What we did then, I mean, with Pagad, was to really try to come to terms with what's happening and then to develop strategy that we thought would be sustainable, even though its impact would not be immediately evident. And um, this organization ballooned, you know, from being a vigilante movement to becoming very clearly anti-state targeting, I mean, bombing state facilities and so on, assassinating police officers, in the end, targeting international presences in South Africa. So the U.S. consulate in Cape Town. Also the uh, Planet Hollywood and Hard Rock Cafe, right? 
exactly American owned businesses and so on. So there was a sort of escalation from a particular issue to a more general political disposition. And our approach was that we need to deal with this problem in a way that's going to be sustainable. There are legitimate causes that brought people originally to this movement where they became ideologically, you know, sort of trained and indoctrinated. So we had to go back to that original cause in the first instance and to show people that there are attempts to deal with it, that it cannot be done immediately, but, you know, there are certain commitments to deal with it. Also to act with caution so that you are able to isolate this group of people from a broader community. And so, you know, in the end, if one looks at the success, and I would say it was phenomenal because there's a point where it appears as if the whole thing stops suddenly. And almost 20 years later, it is still dead, you know. And what people don't realize is that there was so much work done behind the scenes to bring this to an end in a way that it won't be a temporary cessation of activity. And and it was because the government decided that, you know, we are trying to build a nation here. We have to bring people on board. We cannot act in ways that will alienate and important, even if it's a small part of our, our nation and our community. And you had to have proper intelligence. And, and, and this was central to the success, to properly calibrate the political, the social and the security interventions, because those security interventions were there. You know, David, I absolutely think it is a success story. It really nicely fits into this question that I wanted to ask Leanne, because last year, I guess it was 2020, Leanne, you wanted me to read this book, A Savage Order by Rachel Kleinfeld. It took me a year to open it up. But when I did, I found a lot of value in it, and particularly this section about making what she calls dirty deals, right? She talks about the advantages and disadvantages of governments making deals with criminals, insurgents, non-state actors to forge a temporary peace. And then her argument, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, it's essentially that government and civil society can use the lull from the deal-making to build a new order, but inaction will have sort of really negative effects. And as I listen to what David is saying about what the South African government did, there was some thoughtfulness about what are the drivers, how do we address some of the challenges so that we can get a lull, and then how do we, as David said, make sure that there's we can get them to stop and stop for 20 years. So maybe I'm misconstruing what she said, and maybe I'm twisting what David said, but what do you think? You know, How does the, her recommendations fit into this broader conversation we're having? So Jed, I love this question, and I so recommend Rachel's book. Um, some of the biggest takeaways in there, also for me, were about states fueling violence, which is applicable to so many of the topics that we are already talking about today. So how can we apply the thinking here? I mean, what we found in some of Resolve's research is that the character of the group really matters. And the character is beyond just like static character, why they were formed or how well armed they are, but also more of the dynamic characteristics, like how much women's participation is there? Do they have community legitimacy from more than one gender? And also the differences between coercive and negotiated types of violence. So meaning, does the group negotiate with the community around norms of violence when it's justified? Or are they using violence in mainly self-interested ways? How much the group is changing over time? 
And then are they doing so in a way to remain relevant to communities or because they're losing viability? And sometimes we see a lot of these community-based armed groups really become more violent, more venal, more corrupt because they're losing some of their viability. And, and that's unfortunate circumstances for civilians. And then like the wider ecosystem in which these groups exist, and, and Rachel gets into some of this in both her case studies and, and some of the theses in here. But I mean, do communities get a vote on the dirty deal and the contours of it in conflict-affected societies, empowering communities to be part of the deal-making. And that's not to discount some of the challenges, especially on elite manipulation of communities and perverse incentives and the like. But I still think that that kind of community getting a vote is going to be critical to not only making the deal work, but also making the work in the lull, so to speak, um, really stick. And this requires something that we could learn from community-based armed groups themselves, which is that community legitimacy really matters. And so when you think about reforming an armed group, that deeper understanding of the community's needs and allowing them to have a say on how those needs get met seem to be really important. And then lastly, and this is drawing from some of my work at the Institute that we're doing on disengagement and reconciliation for violent extremists, but I think is applicable to a broader swath of community-based armed groups, we sometimes forget that even in the most brutal and desperate of conflict settings, it's still possible for people to abandon violence and to leave violent groups. They may not need to be part of you know, the armed group transformation and that there may be individual ways for people to change, for people to leave groups. And a lot of their ability to change and to leave depends highly on what options are available for them in the future. And so this is one of the things I'm really trying to hammer home on our work is that you know, future risk is not just a function of past behavior. It is entirely dependent on what options are available to someone in the future. And so we could see a lot more people being able to choose a more peaceful future, not just one that's defined on their past actions. Those are such important points. Thanks, Leanne. We are wrapping up, but I want to make sure I give David just one more opportunity to share some of his thinking on this broad topic. David has such a you know incredible resume and in, in life experience. In addition to everything I've said earlier, you also served at the UN in the Middle East and some of the hotspots in the Middle East. So as you think about this topic, and we have a, a large audience of policymakers, are there some top line recommendations, David, that you think people should think about when it comes to addressing this issue of self-defense forces and, and gangs and their ability to transform and then cause insecurity? Chad, maybe two points I'd like to raise. The first thing is that, um, you know, the era of one size fits all solutions as well it should never have been there but it's clearly passed and i think that what is important is to really understand the context in which these groups or movements emerge and to try to deal with them on the basis of their particular emergence and the other point i'd like to make is and which is related to this is that we know that politicians obviously work on particular time frames you know it could be electoral or whatever, or it could be related to the next General Assembly or particular Security Council meeting and so on. But in my own estimation and experience, it, it, it is usually 
more sensible with these things to proceed with greater caution, you know, and to think of the long-term consequences, which often we don't. That's perfect. Thank you, David, so much. Thanks to Comfort and Leanne for joining us, and we'll see everyone in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org Africa. Thanks.